would like to be turning in your Bibles. Uh, Exodus chapter 32 is where we're going to be starting off, uh, moving our way through Exodus chapter 34. So uh, you can just go ahead and get ready for that. It's good to be here with you this morning and, and to see you here. We have a few that are traveling still or, or recovering from surgeries, but uh, certainly wonderful to have you here with us. We've been studying uh, this idea of different prayers in the Bible, uh, and really these are kind of cherry-picked prayers that I've, I've uh, seen that have great value, uh, that, that have something interesting about them that, that really stands out, uh, mainly because of the spiritual nature of them. Uh, and as we are trying to be the body of Christ, it's important for us to be spiritual, to, to have a spiritual mindset, spiritual focus in our lives. And that's ultimately what we've seen as we've studied through these texts. We look at Abraham uh, and how he was so focused on uh, God's promises that he was willing to step out boldly and speak up for Sodom and Gomorrah, of all places. Uh, that he was willing to rely on the mercy of God and say, uh, God, would you please save the city and, and be righteous? If there's ten righteous in the city, would you save the whole city? And, and God, God would even save the city if there would have been ten righteous. Uh, that was a very interesting interaction that a man had with God, a very individual nature, that he was so spiritually focused individually that he would have such an impact on God because of his prayer life. And I think that's important for us to understand that as individuals, we can have a relationship with God where the things that we say matter to God. Uh, we can find favor in his sight so that as we speak, he, he listens. He's interested in knowing what we have to say. And we certainly want to be that spiritual. Uh, if all of us individually are very spiritually focused, then as a collective whole, we as the body of Christ will certainly be to the praise of God's glory. And that's ultimately what we're all about. Uh, Jacob, we saw him last week as he was uh, you know, going through a transition from being a deceiver to being deceived to now just uh, in trouble because he's trying to do what God wants him to do. But Esau's coming with 400 men and what am I going to do? And, and he goes to God in prayer. Uh, and he relies on God, but then he tries to work out things for himself, and then God comes and visits him like he visited Abraham, and he wrestles with Jacob. Uh, and there's this cool wrestling match, like, what's going on? They wrestle all night. Um, and it's, it's it indicating to us that God wants us to wrestle with him, to actually include him in our struggles, in our trials, in our moments of weakness. He wants us to look to him and to hold on to him like Jacob did and asking God to bless and asking God to help. Uh, and, and having that kind of relationship is important for us. Well, today uh, we're going to kind of look at a text that not only has that individual presence, individual spirituality that, that is so interesting in those other stories, but now we're going to see even a collective being brought in as we are the body of Christ and we're collectively thinking about how we can work together uh, to be stronger for the Lord. Uh, I found this text extremely fascinating that there is a collective sense of everybody striving and, and trying to gather uh, you know, from God that blessing that we saw 
earlier in, in these other stories. So we're going to study this together. This is one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament. I've got a lot of favorite texts, but this is up there. You know, this is like, wow, what in the world is going on in this text? And this is definitely one of those amazing texts for us to study together. Uh, as we are there in, in Exodus chapter 32, we see the, the, the children of Israel have been set free from Egyptian captivity. Uh, they've been brought into the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and they've been told the Ten Commandments. God came down on the mountain, and it was thunderous, and, and it was full of clouds and fire from the mountain. And God spoke his Ten Commandments to the people. They said, please don't speak to us anymore. Just tell us through Moses. And Moses, brought, uh, Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and tablets and also to get instructions about how the people are going to be serving God and having a relationship with God beyond just the Ten Commandments. But he's gone for about 40 days, and the people start to wonder, where's Moses? Why isn't Moses here yet? Uh, and they're upset about that, and they're trying to figure that out. And, and unfortunately, they decide to give up on Moses and to give up on God. Uh, after waiting for that long, they decide to replace God with a golden calf. And as you read in, in uh, Exodus 32, it says, When people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron told them to take off their gold, and they threw it into a fire, and out came this calf, is what he, he describes it as later. Uh, they formed a calf, and they said, Behold your God, behold, this is the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. And everybody bows down to worship the golden calf. And God up on the mountain knows exactly what's happening, and he tells Moses to go down. Uh, it's interesting as you read this, if you've read through Exodus up until this point, that God specifically gave them a written list of all the things that he wanted from them. And he spoke those things out of the mountain and they said, we'll do it. Can you imagine that, guys, as you're, you're married? You know, this is what we do whenever we get married. We give each other a list and we say, here's everything that I like and everything that I don't like. I mean, that's, that, that'd be nice, right? Instead, we have to figure that out. Uh, it takes us a long time to try to figure that out. But God gives a list of, here's the things that I like, and here's what I don't like. And in that list, of course, is, I am God, and there are no other gods. There will be no other God before me. And you are not to fashion idols to worship me. It makes it very clear in his list. And here they are, throwing those laws aside, creating something to worship, bowing down to it, and then they get up, and they go and they play and they have fun because they've, they've created a God who has uh, different rules than the one true God. And so now they can go and do whatever it is that they want to do because it's their God and they've, they've created him so he's not going to punish them. And so they are, are ready to uh, worship that God and, and live their own way. Very interesting idea here. Uh, but as you see, God knows all these things that are happening, and God speaks to Moses, and he tells him, get out of the way. I'm about to wipe them out. I'm going to destroy them. And then I'll make a new nation from you, Moses. And uh, we're going to start all over. But Moses intercedes. Moses says, please don't, don't do that. And he goes down, and he sees how bad it is. And he says, who's on the Lord's side? And all the Levites get their swords. He says, 
put your sword out and kill your neighbor. Kill those who are uh, responsible for this. And they go out and they kill. And then uh, Moses comes and he says, if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out of your book. It's this amazing scene from Moses. And God says, I'm not going to blot your name out of my book, Moses. Um, but I'll blot the names of those who are guilty out of my book. And then he brings a plague on the people. That's chapter 32. Okay, so very interesting chapter we see in this. The people are pursuing something other than God. And God is, is of course, offended. And God is willing to bring his wrath against them for this. But Moses intercedes. And Moses is, is trying to prevent that destruction on the people. Uh, and, and then as we get to chapter 33, something very interesting happens. Read verse 1. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and your people, whom you, have brought up, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land to which I swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. After all of this that has happened, God has said, I'm not going to go with you into the promised land. See, God before has, has, has been with his people. And he's shown himself with his people in a pillar of cloud uh, by, by, not, by day and then a pillar of fire by night. He has shown that he's with his people. But now he says, you're going to go up into the promised land. That's good, right? I mean, you get to go, but I'm not going to go with you. Well, wouldn't you think that's kind of a good thing? God says, if I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. You're a stiff-necked people. Wouldn't you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm really stiff-necked. Thank you, God, for understanding um, and not destroying me. You know, that sounds good to me that uh, you would not go with me into the promised land because I am afraid of you and I know that you would probably destroy me. Um, maybe we would think that way. Maybe, you know, as, as the Israelites later feel God has left them, God is not with them, maybe, you know, you would think, oh, great, we don't have to worry about his laws anymore. He's not with us. He's not going to be destroying us. We don't have to worry about that. It's a great thing. We get to have all the blessings. We get to have the promised land. We get to have the milk and honey. We get to have all the prosperity and destroy all the enemies. And we don't even have to keep God's laws. We don't even have to worry about him. He's not going to destroy us. Maybe, maybe we would think that way. It's interesting, though, that the people did not think that way. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. You see them, they're mourning, they're upset, they're recognizing that they've made a huge mistake here, that they're at fault, they're guilty, and they're not okay with what they've done. Uh, you go to verse 7, uh, it's, it's a very interesting scene here. We see Moses going to the tent of meeting, and listen to what happens. It says, uh, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, 
and he called it the tent of meeting. Of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting, which was outside, out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice how after, after all that they've done and after, after they have been worshiping this other God, even though they, they know that there's the one true God, they see Moses now going to the tent of meeting, and they're like, let's worship. You know, it's, you see a complete change in perspective, a complete change in attitude that here's God. God is coming to be with us. God is coming to meet Moses face to face. Look at the pillar of cloud that's coming down and descending. We know he's here with us. Let's worship him while he's with us. They know that's not going to last forever. And so it's as though their hearts are longing for that to be the case, but they're recognizing it, so they're worshiping God while he's with them. It's a very interesting turn that the people seem to have made. When Moses goes and speaks to God, uh, he tells him, uh, verse, 13, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring, the, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you, you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses goes to God and he says, God, you say you know me. You, you, you do know me. You say, I found favor in your sight. You know, that, that's wonderful. But I don't really feel like I know you. It's kind of an amazing statement to come from Moses. I don't feel like I know you. Uh, show me your ways. Help me understand you more. God, wouldn't God say, well, look at the law. I gave you the law, right? I told you all these things that I like or that I don't like. And that's not it. That's not what it means to know God. Let's say your husband, your wife gave you a list of likes and don't likes. Would you say, I know them because I know their likes and don't likes? No, I don't. You don't know somebody because you know what they like or don't like. There's more to the person than that. And you see Moses saying, I need to see more. I need to know you. I need to understand you more. And then at the end, I love how he brings this in. He says, Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God wanted this nation to be his people, a kingdom of priests for him. And Moses points to that, and he says, they want to know you, too. Notice how Moses doesn't say, please go with us, God. Why aren't you going with us? Come on, go with us. He just says, I want to know you. And they need to know you because they're your people. They're called by your name. 
And people who are called by your name should be like you, and they should know you, and they should understand you more fully. And notice God says in verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's pretty awesome. God changes his mind. God changes his mind. And Moses responds, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Look at this. Now Moses pursues God. He's, he gets a little bit of the invitation that this is okay, and then he just, he's all in. He's telling them everything that he's feeling and all that he's thinking, saying, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. And if you don't go with us, we shouldn't be going. Think about this prayer. What all is he revealing in this prayer? First of all, I would say he's revealing that knowing God will lead us to finding favor with God. He says, I found favor in your sight, but I need to know you more. He's indicating, I don't know how I found favor in your sight. I haven't quite put a finger on that yet. There's something about me that you like, and I haven't quite understood and seen what's going on. And these people don't understand you. And it's as though he's saying, if they could just know you like I know you, then they too might find favor in your sight. And that's what Moses is after. But also notice he says, you going with us makes us different, makes us distinct. Yeah, you could just send us into that promised land and you could conquer all our enemies, give us all this power, give us all this wealth. But at the end of the day, we'd be like every other nation out there. And right now we're not because you're with us. And you see how he's, he's, he's pointing to the fact that, you know, even if we just stayed right here in the desert and you're with us, that's more valuable than the promised land. God being with them is more valuable to him than the promised land. That is an amazing statement from Moses. An amazing spiritually minded perspective that he has. He doesn't care about the land. He doesn't care about the the comfortable living and and everything going well for them and being respected and having all the the stuff. He cares about being with God. That's his focus. And, And then we see he also brings the people in. Notice again and again he says, I and your people. I and your people. As he's speaking to God, as he's praying to God, he's not just saying, God, make me the one that you find all the favor in, but he's saying, Bring them too. Let us all find favor in your sight so that we can be to the praise of your glory. So that we can be seen among the nations as your people and people might understand how wonderful you are. So Moses doesn't really just take the yes as the answer. Yes, I'll go with you and then say, all right. You know, maybe that's what we'd say. Yes, he's going with us. But he just, he pleads with God. Go with us. Help us to be what you desire us to be. And then he takes it even further. Uh, In verse 17, God says to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, 
and I know you by name. He's able to make this intercession because of his relationship with God. And Moses says, please show me your glory. The story could have ended in other, that's really amazing stuff, but listen to Moses. He doesn't find satisfaction with the fact that God is going to go with them, that there's going to be a pillar of cloud with them and a pillar of fire with them, and that God's going to carry them all the way through to the promised land and conquer all their enemies and give them everything. He doesn't even find enough satisfaction in that, but he says, I want to know you more. Show me your glory. I want to see you in all your splendor, in all your majesty. I want to see you. And God says, I can't really do that. Verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then the Lord tells him where to go. So God's response is, I will let all of my goodness pass before you. God even responds with a positive, a yes, but he says, I can't let you see it all because you won't live. Now, it's interesting. If you've been studying with us, you've known Moses goes into the tent and talks to God face to face. (laughs) Abraham was speaking to God face to face. Jacob was wrestling with God, and he says, I have seen the face of God and lived. So what is he saying here? That there's a sense in which they've seen his face, but not the fullness of his glory. And that the fullness of his glory is not something that a man can see and live. It reminds me of Isaiah when Isaiah says, I'm going to die, essentially. Uh, as, he, as he comes into the presence of God, he recognizes, I, I'm going to die. I can't, I can't stand in the presence of this fullness of his glory. And Moses has desired to enter the presence of God, to see the fullness of his glory. And God says, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you who I am. You can't see it all. That's pretty amazing. So God uh, allows Moses to go into the cleft of the rock. And he says, uh, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And whenever you come into chapter 34, we see this happen. Uh, Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, as we read this, God passes before him and his name is proclaimed, and we don't really get a description of what he looked like. (laughs) There's not like he was like gleaming metal, like we see that in other texts, that there's a description of God that's given to us, this amazing image, but it just starts to describe God's character. Because if you really want to know who I am, Moses, you really need to see and understand my character. And I've not yet revealed that to you. I've given you all these laws and rules and understanding of my righteousness and all these things. But now I'm going to tell you who I really am. What makes me who I am? And his description is not what a lot of people in the world would describe God as. I'm a God who is merciful. 
gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving the trespasses. That's the first huge section of his description, and you've got to give more emphasis to the first part because it's first, right? But it's this picture of a God who is just so gracious and merciful and forgiving and patient. And there's a picture that God has been patient and forgiving with them all along the way up until now. And he just allowed a little bit of his, uh, his, his just, his nature, that he is uh, not going to clear the guilty to be seen in the, the horrible sins of the people uh, as they have worshipped this golden calf. But that's not ultimately who he is. And you kind of get the sense that this is what Moses was looking for. I want you to go with us, but not destroy us along the way, not consume us. And we see the comfort that this would give Moses. I can be with you, even in all your faults, even in all your mistakes, and all your, your, your horribleness, and I can be patient and merciful and long-suffering with you. But I will by no means clear the guilty. If you refuse to repent, refuse to re- uh, you rebel against me and you're stubborn, then I'm not going to clear you. It's not going to happen. I'm going to bring consequences for that. But you see, I want to be loving, patient, kind, and gentle. And that is his glory. That is a glorious God. If you could just imagine a God who's the creator of the universe and, and everything that's in it, and you were to describe that God in the best possible way you could, that, that you could possibly imagine, it wouldn't be any better than this. There is no better than this. This is the God that we want. If there's an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present being in the universe, I certainly hope this is the description of him. And that's what God describes himself as. That's his glory that Moses gets to see. So what do we learn from all of this? It's been a lot of of information. Hopefully you were able to digest it well. But let's kind of summarize all these things that we've we've learned. First of all, we see uh, that God's people, as God's people, we must not pursue what's false and replace God with other things. That will never be what God is. And say, oh, I'm worshiping God. And then we rise up to play, you know, and, and we make a God that is not the one true God. We cannot do that. That is going to drive God to the point of anger. Uh, and, and we instead need to search for God where he can be found. Not in our stuff. Not in our hobbies. Not in our families. Not in our job. God's not going to be found in our money. God's not going to be found in all these places that the world tells us you'll find God. You'll find that spiritual experience that will give you that feeling of ecstasy and and fulfillment. He'll never be found in those things. And we, we can't fashion up a golden calf and start worshiping it and think we're worshiping the one true God. It's just not true. People were seeking something substantive, something that they could put their hands on, and and they made a grave error. We need to be careful not to fall into that. Also, we see, as we study this, that God's presence is really what matters. And hopefully, we're taking that with us as we leave this place, that if God's not with us, then what are we doing? 
We should be seeking God like Moses seeks God, like the people seek God. We should be seeking for God to be with us as we go into our jobs, as we work with our families, uh, as we battle against Satan and all the temptations and all the trials that he throws at us. We should be seeking God's presence because that's what makes us distinct and different. God is with us. Because we love and serve him and we care about his will and we, we try to live for him. He, we know he's with us and he's taking care of us and we are his people and he is our God. And so we need to be seeking him all the time. And the third thing that we learn from this is that God is glorious. And his glory is in his character. I mean, there's plenty of ways that he could be, you just behold him in his glory in Revelation 4 as we've been studying that. He's glorious in appearance, but his character is the main feature that we need to focus in on. And that we need to be uh, fully giving ourselves to God, not because he looks good, but because he is good. He's full of goodness. And so as we study this prayer, this interaction, hopefully we can have a similar prayer. Because as we come into the New Testament, what we see is really fascinating. What we see is that Jesus has come to us. And what Jesus has done is he's revealed the glory of God to us. He's shown us that God is merciful, that he's patient, he's long-suffering, that he's forgiving... He's fully revealed God to us so that we can see and understand his nature and find assurance that we can trust him to go with us and dwell with us and be with us even though we make mistakes that if we're striving to serve him, then he will be patient and loving and compassionate toward us. Jesus shows us that. In John chapter 1, we see that very thing being told to us, verses 14 through 18. So the question is, are we going to pursue the glory of God? Are we going to pursue uh, understanding and seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Are we going to pursue understanding how the Old Testament reveals Jesus to us? And how in the New Testament, when he comes, we see all the fullness of God being described to us so that we can draw closer to him in relationship. That's what God wants. A deep relationship with him. His glory has to touch our hearts. It's not enough to just say, okay, well, here's his list of rules. I'm going to follow those rules, and then I've got the get-out-of-jail-free card. I was baptized, so I'm good. It's not enough. It's not what God wants, and it shouldn't be what we want either, and Satan's going to use that against us. If we're not really drawn to God, he's going to pull us away from him. So we need to have the glory of God, the nature of God, his character touch our hearts to see that he loved us so much he was willing to give us his son to provide forgiveness of our sins. If that hasn't touched your heart, if that doesn't touch your heart, every time that you think about it, you're not going to draw near to God. You're not going to behold his glory and you're not going to have the assurance that the people of God are supposed to have. So we must, we must let our hearts be touched by the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 
points to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read this. Verse 18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed by it. Have you seen the glory of the Lord? Have you witnessed the beauty and the splendor of God's nature in Jesus? Do you believe it? That the God who is over all things is glorious and that he wants you to be his child. And has that transformed you? Has that transformed you? It's one thing to say that you're spiritual. But it's another thing entirely to have a relationship with God. And ultimately, that's what God desires from all of us, is a relationship. And that's amazing, isn't it, that he would want that? That he would hear Moses say, show me your glory, and he wouldn't say, you're not good enough to see my glory. But he would say, okay, I'm going to show you something. If you're here and you've never seen the glory of God, you've never understood how wonderful he is, He's never touched your heart. I hope and pray that he will today. He will open up your mind and your heart to the truth that's revealed in his word about him. And that it will affect you and cut you deeply. Maybe that you've been going to church all your life and you've never felt emotionally drawn to God. You've never desired to see him, to know him beyond knowing what he wants. I hope that you'll change that. I hope God will change that in you today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy, uh, that you are a merciful and compassionate God, uh, that you're willing to hear us when we pray to you, even though we are unworthy of your presence, uh, that you will be with us and that you will watch over us and care for us and build us up and encourage us and also discipline us whenever we need it. Uh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who reveals to us the splendor of your glory. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we, uh, as we study your word, that you will enlighten our, our hearts and our minds, that we can see and know you beyond what we understand your will to be, that we will see and know you for who you are. Lord, we pray that you'll be with all those who are here this morning who do not know you, uh, that they will... Uh, have a fire lit inside of them to understand you, to see you, uh, and to, to behold your beauty and your splendor. Please help us, Lord, to always go back to the cross and remember that love that was shed for us and help us to, to put on Christ as we live on this earth. Uh, please be with us all and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you've not yet received the grace of God, uh, it's available to you. It's always available, but uh, it won't be available on the day that uh, you're no longer here. And that could be today. So uh, make the decision right now. Please submit your life to God. Receive the grace that he has to offer you. 
You can be forgiven of your sins and receive the mercy and grace that he offers. No sin is too big for him, uh, and he will forgive. Please come as we stand and as we sing.